I am, uh, I'm glad that you're all here this morning. It's a great day to be in the house of the Lord. I hope you all had a happy Thanksgiving. Uh, we don't have to stop and think very hard to realize just how much we have to be thankful for as Christ followers. Amen. All right, well, it's officially, officially Advent season. We talked about those of you who um, decorated early last week, so we won't go back into that. But I hope everyone is excited about uh, what's going on this year. This year we got started a little bit early. Uh, we're already on, it's officially Advent season, but we're already on week three of our Advent series. And we're exploring and, and mining the significance of the birth of Christ by digging into the seven I Am passages in the Gospel of John. Several weeks ago, we got a jump start on this series, though no one, including myself, knew at that point in time that that was going to be our Advent focus. Uh, that kind of came after that. But we went through John chapter 14, and in John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we talked about how Jesus is the exclusive way to God. Jesus is the exclusive, the only way to be saved from our sin and be reconciled or brought back into fellowship and relationship with God. And then last week, we officially started our Advent season early uh, by examining Jesus' claim in John chapter 6, verse 35, when Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The only one who truly satisfies the longing of our souls to the uttermost and for eternity to all who come to him and believe. We also discussed how belief is not just to acknowledge that something is real, but to be totally committed to it. If we're in Christ, then we can have assurance of our once and for all salvation in Christ if we've come to him and committed to him, because none who come and believe will be turned away. And this week will be in John chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip there. We're going to be in John chapter 10. And we're going to actually take a look at two claims that Jesus makes about himself in one parable. And we're going to draw some application from his identity as he reveals it here in Scripture in order to both know him better and to enhance our worship of him this season and beyond. But before we jump into today's passage, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for the cool air outside, for the season that it is. We thank you for all the things that, um, that we have to, to be thankful for, the blessings you've provided for us that we don't deserve, uh, the time that we got to spend this week reflecting on that. Uh, and Lord, we just, with everything, everything that, that goes on in the world, everything going on around us, Lord, help us to keep our eyes fixed on you. Help us to not get distracted by the things of the world during this holiday season. Um, but to, again, to focus not just on the, the baby in the manger, but who that baby was. Oh, Lord, help us to open our Lord, I ask that you would open our hearts and our minds uh, to what you would have to say to us this morning. Lord, speak through me that these would be your words and not mine. Uh, and Lord, I pray that as we dig into your word this morning, that, that you would be glorified uh, through that. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So just like last week, we're going to start in order to grasp uh, the the fullness of what Jesus is saying in chapter 10, we have to take a look at the events that he's responding to in chapter 9. So I know we're, gonna, we're, we're in John chapter 10 uh, is our text for this morning, but we're going to back up and look at John chapter 9 first. 
All right, because in chapter 9, and I'm going to give you the Reader's Digest version of this. So in John chapter 9, Jesus has an encounter with a man born blind, and he restores his sight, all right, his physical sight. This was on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees and religious leaders were more concerned that someone had broken their laws and healed on the Sabbath day rather than the fact that this man had been healed. And here we find the same blindness inherent in sinful humanity as we saw in last week's passage. The same natural blindness that because we are sinners that we are prone to, that we're born with. That's our natural state. And they call the man in and they question him. And when they don't like his answers, they call his parents in and question them. And when they don't like their answers, they call the man back a second time and question him again. And eventually they get so angry and humiliated with his response that they cast him out of the synagogue. It was like being uh, cast out of society at that point in time in Jewish culture. Jesus hears of this and he seeks him out in chapter 9 verses 35 through 41. It says, Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you and you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Now we see two things happening in this story. First, we see this man's eyes are physically open. Jesus heals his body, and a man who was blind from birth can now see. But physically seeing Jesus is not enough. Right? There's, there's no internal transformation in this man's heart. All right? His life is different right? because now he can see where once he could not. Even the Pharisees see Jesus, they hear Jesus talking, they're there, they're there, they witness this. All right. But secondly, at the end of chapter 9, we see this man's eyes are spiritually open. His spiritual eyes are open and he sees Jesus not just physically as a man standing in front of him, but he recognizes Jesus as the Messiah and he worships him. In this case, he saw what the Pharisees could not see. Now the Pharisees overhear this. And they asked Jesus if they too are blind. And they were, they were good people. They checked all the boxes. So he must not be talking about them. That's, that's the assumption. When they ask this question, that's what they're leading him to say. They want him to acknowledge how good they are in front of everybody. And how often do we today, it makes me just stop and think, how often do we today sit in a chair or a pew and just assume that this sermon or this text or this point doesn't apply to me? They're not really talking about me without actually reflecting to see if maybe it just might be the case. Jesus points out that there are actually none who are truly completely blind enough to claim ignorance. Right? Ignorance is not a valid, you can't, you can't that, that's, that can't be our plan and I'm going to stand before God and say I don't know. Because elsewhere in the New Testament or we are confronted with the fact that even just in creation around us, the reality of God is revealed to us so that all of us are without excuse. So that's not what Jesus is saying here. None of us are truly blind enough to claim ignorance, but the fact that these men actually claim to be righteous 
actually proved just how guilty they really were. Actually proved just how blind they really were. And it's into this exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees that we enter our text for today. So if you haven't done so already, turn with me to John chapter 10. And we're going to start in verse 1. And Jesus continues this discussion with a parable. He presents them the initial parable. John chapter 10, starting in verse 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way. That man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Where he has brought out when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Now, Side note, it's really important to pause and remember here that John, when John sat down to write, John wrote one continuous gospel. All right, it started in the very beginning and it ended at the end, and that was it. All right, John didn't break it up into sections. The chapters and the verses were added centuries later to help us do what we're doing right now, to help readers navigate the Bible all right, so that we can turn to a specific passage and reference a specific place and flip through and find it quickly. That's the purpose of the chapters and the verses. John did not write those. That is not part of inspired scripture. So this text has to be read knowing that there's no break from chapter 9 to chapter 10. That's just there for us to be able to distinguish which verses are where in a book that is, uh, in, if you're looking at the Red Pew Bible, over 1,200 pages long. All right. There's no transition words signaling that the conversation is over or that the scene is changing. It's one continuous story. So with that in mind, to get the full picture of what Jesus is saying, we're going to back up just a little bit and read from chapter 9, verse 40, through chapter 10, verse 1, and see if we can identify the first of the, these cast of characters in this parable. All right. So starting in chapter 9, verse 40, and going to chapter 10, verse 1, some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. So who are the thieves and the robbers that Jesus is speaking of? All right. He's not warning about some future enemy that will come. Do you, do you grasp what Jesus is doing here? All right, he's publicly identifying Israel's religious leaders as thieves and robbers. As not the shepherds of God's people, but as those who are stealing from God's people, who are harming God's people, who are robbing God's people. They're illegitimate leaders. They are false teachers. Not only misleading the sheep, but actually causing harm to the sheep. All right, the thieves and the robbers in this story are the Pharisees. The people that Jesus is talking to. So anyone who tries to tell you that Jesus was a non-confrontational person hasn't read the Gospel of John. Because right, he calls them out, black and white, here, here it is. All right, he lays it out for them. These men, he points out in this parable, these men were more interested in what the sheep could give them and in the power and the authority of their positions than they were in the well-being of the sheep. In fact, they were not interested in the well-being of the sheep at all. They, they were motivated by selfish interest. Even their supposed good deeds were motivated by selfish interest at heart. 
And likewise today, the character of the enemies of God hasn't changed a whole lot. The character of the enemies of God and his people look eerily similar. There are many today who have leadership positions and who claim to be Christ followers, but their lives and ministries reveal a much greater concern for their own power and their own comfort than for the souls of those they are supposedly leading. And chapter 9 of the Gospel of John is a case in point. Chapter 9 is a case in point. The leaders who should have recognized Jesus' handiwork as that of the Messiah, they responded not because they were curious as to what Jesus had done. They responded because their authority had been threatened. Here's somebody who broke one of our rules. Their authority had been threatened. And they cast out the sheep. Why? Because he was healed. They cast out the sheep for being healed. The ones who should see could not. The ones who should see do not see. Now, the sheepfold, just to set the scene a little bit, the sheepfold was an enclosure, especially if one was close to a city where shepherds would go and they would take their sheep, and it was a, typically it was a circle, not always, but it was, it was an enclosure with a, with a single gate, typically. They would bring the sheep in, the sheep would be safe there, and then they would go and get them whenever they moved on to the next place. All right? They would be safe there, they would come get them the next morning. And a lot of times, especially close to the cities, you would have multiple flocks in one big sheepfold. And it provided security for the sheep. And you would have an appointed guard or a watchman who would run the gate. And if you're familiar with livestock at all, um, you really need, if you're doing anything with livestock, you need somebody who's running the livestock, whatever it is that you're doing, and somebody to run the gate. That's a very important job. It was the same way, the same is true then. Now, each shepherd had a particular call that they would make, and at the sound of his call, his sheep would come to him. Now, in doing livestock today, whether it's cows or sheep or goats or whatever, the, the Western mentality is to drive the animals. We drive cattle, we drive sheep, we use dogs, we use ATVs, use horses, whatever the case may be. All right? In the Eastern mindset, in the Eastern tradition, they would lead their sheep. The sheep would follow them. They would learn the call. They would learn the sound of their voice. And they would associate safety and food and water with that person. I'm going to follow them. So Eastern shepherds, Middle Eastern shepherds, led from the front. All right? So we're not talking about a shepherd who is driving his sheep. We're talking about uh, that's, that's literally how it worked. They had a call, and the sheep would come to them. They would follow them, and the shepherd had to lead them. The sheep went where the shepherd went. And these shepherds led their sheep from the front. Now the watchman or the under-shepherd or the gatekeeper, depending on your translation, would recognize the shepherd and he would open the gate so that the sheep could go out or come in, whatever the case may be. So in this parable, Jesus is contrasting the Pharisees, the illegitimate leaders, the thieves and the robbers, those who climbed in the sheepfold another way, with the legitimate leader, the authentic shepherd, who enters by the door. All right. And notice what he does. All right. <clears throat> this, is where, this, this is a point that they would have picked up on. This was different. He, do, he doesn't issue a generic call. All right. He calls his sheep by name. He calls them by name. He knows his sheep, and this call is individual and specific. He knows in this flock, this mingled flock, he knows which sheep are his. And he calls them out by name. Now, this is, all, this is also important. The next character in our cast here is the sheep. All right? The sheep in the fold, the mingled flock, represents Israel. The mingled flock represents Israel. 
Now, some of them will hear his call. Some of them will recognize his voice and follow him. Is that not what just happened in John chapter 9? The first Christmas day, Jesus came where? To what nation? To Israel. Jesus came to Israel, and he lived his life in Israel, all right, and he did his ministry among the Jews. He ministered among the Jews. And in the previous chapter, in chapter 9, he performed a miracle, and some recognized him as the Messiah, while others rejected him, rejected him as if they hadn't heard anything that he just did. Now, with the benefit, we have to acknowledge, we have the benefit of hindsight and the entirety of Scripture. We also know that this is exactly what Jesus was going to do. This is exactly what Jesus was doing all along. He came to the Jews, born as a baby in Bethlehem. He lived a sinless life. He ministered for three years amongst the people of Israel. And at the end of his ministry, what happened? Some followed him, and some did not. Does that sound familiar? That's the same dichotomy we looked at last week. Last week I made the comment that you can divide all people that have ever lived throughout history are into two groups, those who believe and those who do not. At the, end of the, at the end of time, when we stand before God, that's the only distinction that's going to matter. Those who believe and those who do not. And we see the same thing here. Some followed Jesus, some did not. Those who believe and those who do not. Again, we have to acknowledge, with the help of hindsight, we know that the sheep who are His, the ones who recognize His voice, are believers. They represent the believers. And again, here we see similarities from our passage last week. So we're going to kind of jump back to John chapter 6. And we're going to look at a portion of our passage last week. John chapter 6, starting in verse 35, verses 35 through 40. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day." And again, the same idea continued in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now compare that to John chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, which we've already read. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Again, here we see God's sovereignty in salvation. God's sovereign hand in salvation. The source of our assurance, as we looked at last week. He calls His sheep by name. They recognize His voice, and they come to Him. They obey His voice. They follow Him, and He brings out how many? All His own. All the ones that are His. All the ones that He called by name, He will bring out. How many of his sheep are left behind? How many of the ones that are his almost made it? How many were close but not not quite good enough? He calls, sheep obey, and he loses not one. Same as last week. 
Now, this is the short version. All right. He tells this story in five verses. Short version. But then look at verse 6. John chapter 10, verse 6. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but surprise, they did not understand what he was saying to them. They did not understand what he was saying to them. And so we see here, we see confusion on the part of the Pharisees. Even after Jesus, he has this whole conversation with them. They saw what he did in chapter 9. They've been discussing with him. They heard him teach. He gives them an analogy using imagery specific to them and their culture that they would be familiar with so that they could understand, still they do not. Thus, proving his point. Same point as he proved with the same group of Pharisees, with the same group of people last in our, in our passage last week. Sinful humanity will not commit wholeheartedly in faith. Sinful humanity will not believe unless God does a miraculous work in them by opening their spiritually blinded eyes to see and believe the reality that's right in front of them. The blind man in chapter 9 had his sight restored and he physically saw Jesus. But it wasn't physical healing that he really needed. It wasn't until Jesus healed his spiritual blindness that he recognized that the man he was looking at, the man he knew, was the Messiah. The Pharisees are confused. They've seen it. They've heard it. Jesus has explained it. He gives them an analogy, gives them a parable. They still don't understand it. So Jesus expands on it. Continue with me in verse 7. Chapter 10... Verse 7, Jesus says, I am the door. I am the door. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. So here we see Jesus identifies himself as the door of the sheep. He is the door of the sheep, the gate, if you will. There had been many who had come before Jesus and claimed to be the Messiah, and all were pretenders. Every single one of them. There were many who falsely claimed to be sent from God, just as today there are still many who claim to have special revelation from God that only they have. But Jesus is the door. And anyone who attempts to gain access to the sheep by any other means is a fraud. And not only are they a fraud, but their ultimate intent is on harming the sheep. Very clear here. And as the gate represented security for the sheep, so Jesus represents the single, the singular source for eternal security and safety and salvation hinting at his more explicit, explicit claim that we've already seen in chapter 14, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. None other. No one comes to the Father except through the door, which is Jesus Christ. Here he is the gate. Anyone who promises redemption or satisfaction or fulfillment, salvation, etc., apart from Jesus, as if there is another way, is a fraud and his or her only ultimate goal is to steal kill and destroy is that not again what just happened in chapter 9 is this not an analogy of what just took place 
Why did the Pharisees question the man and his parents? Was it because they wanted to follow Jesus? Or was it because they wanted to find out how he was healed? Because they were curious? They wanted to know? They wanted to learn? Or was it to find out who they should punish and how they should stop him? Steal, kill, destroy. In contrast, Jesus came out of love and concern for the sheep. That they may have life and have it abundantly. Only one source of true, abundant life. And that's Jesus. Any gospel that circumvents the door is a false gospel. But in case, you hadn't, in case you hadn't figured it out yet, he then identifies himself as another aspect in, uh, in this parable. So continue on with me in verse 11. All right? In verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. And for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus is not only the gate, but Jesus is the good shepherd. He is not only the gate, he's also the shepherd. This harkens back to the imagery that we see in Psalm 23, which many of us are familiar with and which they most certainly have been familiar with. Psalm 23 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Somebody want to finish it? He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's one, if you've grown up in Awana, that's one you memorize pretty quick. And obviously I memorize that in the King James Version. They just keep slipping out. But, but that's one that, that most of us, if you've been around church for very long, that's a, that's a fairly familiar passage written by uh, David. And so that would have been very familiar to the Pharisees. The shepherd imagery, Jesus being the good shepherd, they would have understood what he was claiming to be. Or that he was associating himself with divinity. All this is true. However, Jesus takes it even a step further by claiming that the good shepherd also lays down his life or sacrifices his life willingly for the sheep. Now, it's, it's so easy for us to read this and skip over that without really comprehending what he's saying here. All right? It's Shepherds' livelihoods depended on their sheep. Aren't they? they needed their sheep, and they needed their sheep to survive in order for them to, to make a living. So they were more than willing and ready and capable of defending their sheep from predators and from thieves. 
they had staffs, they had slings, they had other weapons at, they, at their disposal, as we saw when David, who was a shepherd, used the tools, the weapons of a shepherd to kill the warrior Goliath. It's tempting for us to just assume that this was part of a shepherd's job, all right? this willingness to lay down a life and limb to protect the sheep. All right? And that's why Jesus chose this imagery, because he's like a shepherd. All right? However, that's, that's not necessarily the case. And they would have picked up on this. This was a very this this was distinct. This was was going one step further. All right. And let me, so let me put it to you this way: How many of you go to work intending to lay down your life for the company or your employer or those you who you work with? How many of you go to work and that's your goal every day? All right. Today's the day I get to lay down my life. Today's the day I get to die for my job. All right. Nobody, I hope, if nobody loves their job that much. If you do, we have a problem. Now, some might be willing to, if you're a soldier, if you're a police officer, um, various other first responders, if you're a firefighter, some, that's, that's a legitimate possibility. You know going into that field, this is something I might have to do. But even in, that, even in the instance of those brave men and women, they don't show up to work every day with the intention of dying for other people. Right. Here's another example. How many of you love your pets? All right. How many of you love your pets or your livestock? How many of you now would genuinely rather lose your life than have something bad happen to them? All, right. All of a sudden we realize, well, I don't love my pets that much. Uh, maybe I don't love them. Again, if you do, we have a problem, All right, and we can, we can talk later. All right. A shepherd was more than willing to defend his sheep. They were more than ready and willing All right, to defend their sheep. There was a lot at stake. And that was often a dangerous job that could come at the loss of his life, but that was not the goal. At some point, all right, it's not worth it. At some point, it's not worth it. What good were his sheep to him if he was dead? At the end of the day, it was not part of his job description for a shepherd to sacrifice himself for his own sheep. Now, Israel had had many false prophets, many false teachers, selfish kings, pseudo-messiahs, etc. But like the hired hand here, they were out for their own good. They put themselves before the sheep, and when push came to shove, their actions revealed a lack of concern for the sheep in their ultimate efforts to save themselves. And I would argue that we see a similar response from many today who used to claim to be Christ followers, who were leaders of even in many instances, but who have turned and run when social pressure starts to heat up. How many once popular, respected preachers and teachers and musicians, etc., have we seen in recent days, just in recent days, in the, the last few weeks or months, so just take the last year even, how many have we seen reject clear biblical teaching, clear biblical morality because it is no longer popular or mainstream? How many celebrity leaders have made millions of dollars from Christianity and then turned and run when the wolves showed up? The point is, just because the good shepherd has come doesn't mean there are no longer imitation shepherds. They are very much still here. Now he concludes this parable by explicitly, explicitly claiming up front that he lays down his life. He voluntarily does this. Again, this was not, that people would have been, wait a minute now, this is not normal for a shepherd. But Jesus says, I, I come, this is, this is what I am here to do. I'm willingly giving my life. I intend to sacrifice my life for my sheep. He lays down his life, and he makes a very explicit point that he lays it down. It is not taken from him. 
It reminds me of when my parents would remind me, I brought you into this world. I can take you out. Miss Tammy has said that, I'm, I'm sure, or more than once. I've, I, I know I have heard that more than once. I, I'm, hopefully I'm not the only one. But I brought you in this world. I can take you out. And that's, that's, that's how I envision Jesus saying this here. All right? I, can lay my, I, can, I can lay my life down and I can pick it up whenever I very well feel like it. He has authority to lay it down. He has authority to take it up again. All right? He's telling them, don't think because I may die that someone has power over me. I choose when I lay it down, and I can pick it up at any point I so desire. Jesus knows exactly what's going on here, but is further proof of the abject spiritual blindness that we've been talking about. Think about what he just said and who he said it to. What he said and who he said it to. He's talking to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders, and he tells them that no one can take his life from him. He will choose to lay it down, and then he will choose to pick it back up again when he feels like it. All right? Who was it that he laid his life down to? Who was it that he allowed when he was good and ready to take him to the Romans to be crucified? And who was it that refused to believe when he rose from the dead and persecuted anybody who did believe? The very same group of people. The very same Pharisees Jesus was talking to became the fulfillment of the prophecy. Again, those who should have seen do not see. They're without excuse. He lays it out for them. He even tells them exactly what's going to happen, and when it happens, they still don't believe. When Jesus is finished, we see a predictable response. Magically, the people respond exactly the way he says they would. Look in verses 19 through 21. There was again a division of Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon, he's insane, why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Now, catch what he's saying here. Notice the division. What's the division here? What, the, the people that he's talking to are split into two groups. What is the division? Many of those who didn't like him before still don't like him regardless of what he's done or say, done or said. They say he's a demon, that he's possessed, that he's insane. Don't listen to him. Don't listen to him. Thieves, robbers, wolves, selfish false teachers. Here's the division. Some were that way, but others said, wait a minute. Wait a minute, you see the light bulb go off. Now, wait a minute. How does that work? Demons can never praise God. Demons blind. They don't open eyes. Do you see what's happening here? Most of the sheep were in the same place they were before. But some heard his voice. Some heard his voice. As we close our time together in the Word, I hope you learned something about this passage and about our Good Shepherd. There's so much that we can glean from this passage. We've barely scratched the surface of everything that's contained here in this text. However, this is our Advent series, so I want to keep our focus as, as simple as possible this morning. And I want to ask the question, what does this have to do with Christmas? What does it have to do with Christmas? What is our Advent application? All right, and I, in case you, if you're all going through the notes, there's one point for today. There's one point in today's sermon, one takeaway. 
And maybe you picked up on it already, but I intentionally skipped over one phrase, one verse. There's one character that we have yet to identify. Because you see, if this was the entirety of the story, it would be a good story, but it would mean nothing to us. It would be meaningless for us. If the Pharisees are the thieves and the robbers, and Jesus is the door and the shepherd and the sheep in the fold are Israel, then what in the world does this story have to do with us and what does that have to do with Christmas? First of all, for all of us in this room, turn with me to verse 16. Because verse 16 must be one of, if not the most beautiful passage in all of Scripture. and For sure in all of John's Gospel. In verse 16, Jesus says, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. So who are these other sheep? The Gentiles, you and I. People who are not part of Israel. So unless there's somebody in here who traces their roots back to Israel, that's all of us in this room. That's all of us in this room. You and I. The Great Commission in Matthew 25 and its implementation as we've been studying in the book of Acts are here foretold in this parable. Jesus came to Israel, but He didn't come just for Israel. He came for His sheep, and He has sheep in many folds. He has sheep in other flocks, and he will lose not one. He will lose not one. This is why we celebrate the coming of the Good Shepherd in human form that first Christmas night. He came to call his sheep out of where they are into one unified flock with one true Good Shepherd. Christmas is a time we set aside each year to remember that Jesus left his heavenly throne He became a man out of love and obedience to his Father to live the life we couldn't live, to die the death our sin deserved, so that we might have our spiritually blind eyes open to hear his voice, to come to him, to follow him in committed obedience, and find forgiveness and justification, transformation, and eternal life. At the end of the day, when all is said and done, There's only two groups of people. Those who are in his flock and those who are not. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. As the praise team comes to lead us in further worship, let's let's not sing merely of a baby in a manger born a long time ago. Rather, let's remember that that baby is the good shepherd that laid down his life for us, his sheep. And then picked it back up again three days later and is calling the sheep, he's calling his sheep by name to come to him. Come to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again so much for today. We thank you for the time that we have to celebrate your birth. Lord, help us to not focus on the baby in the manger, but the identity of the baby in the manger. And Lord, everything that that means for us, Lord, we have hope and we have joy and we have peace and assurance of salvation. We have redemption from our sin we have forgiveness we have relationship and fellowship with you today because of who you are because you are the good shepherd because you came in human form lived the life we couldn't live died the death to pay the penalty that our sin had incurred so that we might hear your voice lord open our eyes help us to see you as you truly are and lord help us to respond when you call lord if there's anybody in here 
that doesn't know you as their good shepherd. Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes. Help them to see. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your identity as you've revealed it to us in your word. And Lord, I pray as we, as we get ready to praise you this morning for the work that you did that started the day you came as a baby in a manger. Lord, help us to not forget the purpose. Help us to not forget who that baby is. And help us to praise you for it. Lord, may our worship be pleasing to your ear. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.